Hey, beer nerds, and welcome to a new podcast. If you're wondering why this showed up on your podcast feed automatically, it's because my former podcast, Building Breweries, uh, has now become the Kentucky Commons Radio Hour, presented and organized by myself and my two partners, John and David. Um, together, we are Louisville Oil Trail. Um, the show is still in its early stages, and we're still figuring things out, but we did want to go ahead and share with you our, our Louisville Beer History panel that we hosted as part of Louisville Beer Week 2021 uh, back on October 23rd. So expect some changes in the near future, but this is something that I'm personally very excited about. Enjoy. So hey, thank you so much for coming to our first ever Louisville Beer History panel. To be honest, it's just a selfish thing for me that I want to hear, so I thought I'd just rope everybody else into this uh, to, to enjoy it as much as I do. Um, so before we introduce the panelists, just want to say a big thank you to you all coming here, celebrating Louisville Beer Week with us. Thank you so much. Um, also want to give a shout out to Against the Grain, letting us use this new Whirling Tiger uh, event venue. Um, place is going to be awesome. Really excited to see some shows here. It's not done yet. It's not done yet, but it's almost. Um, and then also shout out to Milton Rutliger for making this happen as well, providing for our audio and visual. Thank you so much, Lauren. You, you moved on me. There you go. Thank you, Lauren. Yeah, Lauren. All right. So. I think we're good to go. Let me introduce to you all to uh, Jeff Faith of Fairs, and he'll introduce our panelists. All right, thanks. I think they called me for this because I used to referee roller derby, and uh, I was going to bring a whistle, but I think it'll be pretty civil. Uh, so we have Leah Danes from Apocalypse. Dinas. Dinas. See, look. Rhymes with Venus. That's, that's awesome. Oops. Um, so I figured I'll introduce you guys and you can tell a little bit about yourselves if that's okay. Um, if you want to go, or yeah, go ahead. Oh, well, I'm Leah Dinas, you know, Venus. Sorry. <laughs> um, I am the head brewer and co-owner of Apocalypse Brew Works. We've been open for nine and a half years. We are just down the street and around the corner. I live just down the street, so I walked here. So um, it's nice to be in the neighborhood. Um, my history with craft beer is a long and storied one, but a long time home brewer, a lot of awards all the way to the national level. Um, and I also have two great uncles that brewed for breweries in this city. So that is a lot of fun. One of them was at Falls City. Awesome. So. Awesome. And Sam Cruz? I'm Sam Cruz, co-owner and co-founder of Against the Green Brewery. Uh, God, I don't do anything interesting than, like I used to. I don't brew. Uh, I don't work in the restaurants or anything like that. I do a lot of business development. So things like this come up and it's my job to figure out how it's going to work. Uh, my history in beer here in Louisville is probably the shortest of everyone in here. Um, I came on around 2007 as an assistant brewer at BBC and it's kind of worked my way to where I'm at now. So I don't, I don't know. That's it. That's me. <laughs> And how about Roger Baylor? It, it's on. Yeah. Okay, good. Uh, so I'm Roger, and I used to work for a brewery in New Albany, and now I don't work for them anymore. And I'm <laughs> sitting in, in uh, New Albany, but I still wore what I think is my greatest accomplishment ever. And that's yeah. These machines. Yes. Yeah, we got Kevin Gibson over there. Hey, um, so I'm a local writer and author. I've written for Leo Weekly and uh, 
inside of Louisville and a lot of other places. Um, and so I've, I've written a bunch of books, and I wrote a book in 2014 called uh, Louisville Beer about Louisville brewing history. So that's, I guess, that's probably why I got invited to be here tonight. I can't imagine any other reason. Well, they haven't know we're the right shirt. I think they knew you liked to talk, Kevin. It's perfect. So, uh, yeah, we just got a, a few topics to just kind of throw out, and you guys can, uh, whatever, you, whatever you think about, they've got a list up here. So we were just thinking about uh, Louisville breweries, what was going on. So early brewing, early brewing in Louisville. Um, any thoughts about the first breweries? Or, Roger, you, you might have something there. The, I, I know less about the breweries in Louisville than I do in New Albany, where I'm from, and so. Yeah, look, okay, maybe Leah's on oh, yeah, this. No, she no, was no, reading no, last no, night. No, no, no. That's so, right. I know she studied. The Indiana breweries are not currently participating in you know, Louisville Beer Week, so <laughs> I don't know if I'm part of that or not. <laughs> but going back um, to the Monic, yeah, they're kind of carpet bag. <laughs> um, <laughs> And, and just really briefly, in, in New Albany, I know that probably one of the first breweries over there, and, and he had come from Louisville, I believe, Portland area, was a, a fellow named Hugh Ainsley, who was a Scotsman, who came over 1840s, I forget exactly, what, it was in 1840s, I think, and had a, a brewery very briefly in, in New Albany, so he was probably the first one on our side of the river, and that, that would have been, um, uh, we would imagine, maybe some sort of British Isles heritage. He was, very interestingly, he was a uh, Scots nationalist. He was also a poet. He was supposed to be a fairly tall guy, kind of six foot four, I think. He was, well, he was, he was this big giant guy who was a brewer and maybe worked in the, the boats as well, and then he also wrote poetry, so. As, as far as Louisville, I mean, uh, I think the first recorded brewery was 1808, is that correct? Uh, they got me on this morning trivia was with Apple Hill, right. is that right? Yeah. yeah, and it was in my book, and I forgot, I didn't, I didn't get it right, so I stumped <laughs> myself on that one. But no, it's like the early, the early breweries in Louisville were, were mostly English and Irish breweries. They make a lot of ales, and then it wasn't until like the 1840s, 1850s that uh, Germans started settling here and started making lager breweries. And so the predominant style by 1850, 1860 was lager. Um, and so it was a whole different thing for, for what Louisville was doing. And, you know, it, it didn't take long for a third of the Louisville population to be German. Uh, so that's, that's why German beer gardens and German style beers became so prevalent, Bach beers and lagers. And um, so anyway, that's my take on the early stuff that, that was going on. Well, the cool thing about Louisville was the Louisville has, there was over, in our history, have been over 200 breweries. So if, think about if you're driving down, these are for Louisville people, if you're going down Goss Avenue and you see all these little storefronts, they were grocery stores, they had little breweries in the back. So everybody was making their own style of neighborhood beer, and a lot of them were making common beer because it was an ale style, and it was a dark beer. And a lot of that, they, it was developed by the German brewers because of the water. We have, um, we have a lot of carbonate in our water because of the limestone. And then they offset some of that with acidic dark malts. That's why they made it a little bit dark. And that's why the German beers were turning into that. Um, I cannot talk about the, all that yet. Oh, but yeah. but they, it's so cool that there were so many teeny little bitty breweries. I mean, it was like one on every corner. And that's, that was the, the important part about our 
brewing history. And then a lot of the lager styles came in when refrigeration became prevalent and they could do ice. Instead of having to like put it in the cellars, like kind of like below Gravely where they have those cellars, that's where they used to lager beer. But when ice machines became prevalent, that's when everybody could start to do it. So I don't know shit about the history of beer, to be honest with you. <laughs> modern history, I can tell you. When I say modern, I mean like 2000. So I don't know yet. Um, I do have one factoid, though, Kevin. It's Applegate. The brewery was Applegate. Yeah, yeah just letting you know on that. I had a question, actually. I'm, I know you're the moderator, but I had a question. How did bourbon affect beer? Like, was that that there? Well, beer was... Beer was the temperance drink. Whiskey was the evil drink, you know, by the time we got to the late 1800s. And beer was associated with temperance, and so that's how they tried to sell it. Is it is lower alcohol? Your, uh, you know, your husband's not going to come home and beat you as hard if he's drinking <laughs> beer versus whiskey. I mean, that really, that was sort of the, the sell for beer. So I think that it affected it uh, in, in that way. But, you know, as, as Lee pointed out, we also had the limestone water which make really good beer. And, and uh, someone in, in the day could, uh, compared it to, I think, Trent, England, where Bass Ale is made and said, this is, it's the, the situation is right uh, in terms of terroir, water, temperature, to make really good beer. And so if you think about it, Bass is so much like Kentucky Common, you know, in the way it tastes, the way it drinks, I don't know, to me that's an interesting, an interesting comparison there. But. I think it's interesting, uh, Leah brought up the ice. You know, they used to actually cut ice in the wintertime out of the lakes and rivers and, and store it underground. And, you know, they could make loggers as long as they could um, until it got warm. And it was actually uh, Frank Fair Brewery that uh, had the first ammonia compressor and ice machine. They supplied ice to everybody in town at one point in the 1880s. Yeah. Uh, and the German influence came up. I think we should talk more about the German influence and, you know, uh, the beer gardens and things like that. Leo was so right that you still see so many buildings around town that are, that are two-story and it's a corner, you know, storefront and the families would live upstairs and they would sell their wares, whether it was a grocery, sometimes a saloon in the back, often a saloon in the back. Um, but like the, the German influence also, you know, made the beer gardens go because that's what they did on Sundays. They worked hard six days a week. They worked 12-hour days and on Sunday, the Sabbath, they didn't work. And so they were going to the beer gardens and drinking and singing and bowling and playing games and hanging out with their kids and drinking a lot of beer. And that's, that was such a cultural thing. You know, and they're, you know, that little, that little corner spot there at uh, Baxter and Barstown Road uh, that was Zender Garden back in the 1800s, 1880s or so. That was a big beer garden. Um, it, was in, it had you know gazebos and they had a pond out back. You know that's where the Holy Grail is now, which what used to be the Holy Grail and what was a KFC for a while. And you know and everyone knows that corner. Uh, that was a huge beer garden in the day. You know so there were so many around town that really you know that that were such a big part of our culture back in the late 1800s. You know, the, the German influence was, it's hard to express how, how important it was. But I, but I would add something to this, which is um, that German influence and drinking on Sunday didn't always 
play well with the uh, prevailing <laughs> elements who yeah, were in yeah. town. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it was. Um, we look at it now, and we we talk about how wonderful that is from the German heritage. But it, I think it's kind of foreshadowing for our fourth item on here, prohibition. That, that it didn't play well with um, the people who were already here, which I think is kind of a American tradition that the people who travel here from somewhere else eventually become overbearing to the ones who followed them, and I think that that's what happened uh, oftentimes with the uh, Germans and the existing sort of Anglo-Protestants who were here. Uh, you know, uh, you mentioned the beer gardens. I think uh, uh, Phoenix Phoenix Brewery was a huge beer garden, and you can still see at, at Gravely there the uh, the beer caves. You know, if you, that's just literally where they stored beer and ice. The green building on the corner was, was the horse table for right. for Phoenix Brewing Company. You know, and that's that's the last remaining building. Well, that's yeah, the bottling, but yeah, the bottling plant and like part part of the part of the Erdl's Brewery is that one building there that right, yeah, but yeah, but but. The beer gardens, I think the Phoenix Brewing Company have a 111 foot bar, outdoor <laughs> bar. That's a long bar. Woo! I want to have a beer at that bar. I want to have a Kentucky Common at that bar. Just saying. A bar, you know, the Velodrome, yeah. They had indoor baseball games. I mean, it's crazy. And pig, pig wrestling. I don't, again, I don't know shit about the history of this. <laughs> Uh, I do. What I, what I do think is interesting, though, is that happened at a time when there were far fewer people in the city. Like to me, it's amazing that that was that the culture existed here. And then obviously we had that bullshit with prohibition and, and you know killed it all. But it's really heartening to see what we have like twenty five breweries in the city now. We're we're climbing back. It's I don't know that we'll ever hit that again, but we're climbing back. It's really great to to have all these places to go. So. We're slowly getting there, you know. I don't it, German influence. Who knows? Nowadays, I think we're all pretty homogenous, but it's still pretty exciting to see all the stuff we have going on. Yeah, you know, one of the things I heard was uh, when a lot of Germans came to the country, the uh, Ohio Valley reminded them a lot of home. You know, similar climate, and the you know the Rhine River and the Ohio River it was just a, a comfortable place. And Cincinnati and Louisville, you know, became a home. Wow, far out. Um, so. <laughs> uh, so Leah was kind of talking about Kentucky Common a minute ago. Um, you you want to have a chat about that? Well, where do you, what rabbit hole do you want me to go down? Everyone <laughs> you want. Well, I mean, I mean, I, they they certainly have a, a lot of information, but. Um, um, yeah, but you're the brewer, so. Right. Well, but the the thing is, there's there's interesting history about. Kentucky Common. I mean, they. When we tried to bring it back, that the history of Kentucky Common is Ertl's, which was probably the largest commercial brewery in the city, was making 425 barrels a day, every day, of Kentucky Common, and that's the only beer that they made for years and years and years and years and years, and then finally they ended up getting and they started to make like a, a, a strong ale but they were still making Kentucky Common because that's what they were making um, 450 barrels is a lot of beer and, and the thing is they made it because it was quick it was nine days from brewing to barrel to for them serving it to folks which is very very short and that's what made it really popular it was what it is it's it's a dark ale 
It's, it's crisp, it's got a dry finish, it's got a hint of caramel malt, which gives it a little bit of character. Um, what made it popular, and there's, now there's, there's, we're still doing research on this thing. Some people think there, are, there were sour versions out there, but Ertl's had pitched line barrels. And their version, because it was probably the most widely distributed in the city, is probably not sour. But when they had the fire at the Ertl's Brewery, they also, you can see it in their brew log, they, they ripped the page out and made a copy of it and they handed it to Phoenix Brewery. And the Phoenix Brewery brewed it while they were rebuilding the Ertl's Brewery. But there were many other breweries in town making their own version of Kentucky Common because it was so popular and it was so good and it was easy to drink, low alcohol, they called it dark cream ale. So um, I'm still in touch with one of my friends that he wrote the style guideline and he's doing experiments because the wall and heinous, which is like the, the the brewing encyclopedia that was back in the in the 1800s, and they said there were lactic versions available, but they didn't know if it was the lactic was from the barrels. So, so we made a mistake. well, no, I think it was just a different variation. Yeah, I think it's just a variation. I just feel feel that when the style guidelines were written for recent beers that they wanted to do. They say that there were some, but I think that was the anomaly, not the norm, because the pitch line barrels, because it was 325 barrels a day, people. Come on, that's a lot of beer. <laughs> and they took, they, so what they did, they took the barrel and they put, they put the, kind of like a wax inside because the wood can harbor bacteria. So what they did, they almost, it's not wax, but it's like the pitch is like a tar. And then they would line those barrels with it. And then neutral, that could be- It's a neutral tar, so yeah. just trying to avoid contact with it. Right, so they could clean it. And they could be a, they could be a clean version. So. So we assume, we assume that it was not tart unless it was an anomaly. That is sort of the assumption right now, but as I say, you know, there were always versions out there, always versions out there. So it's not to say that that, it, that is incorrect. Sure. That's, I mean, they're both valid versions. And if you're a judge like I am, when I have to judge the style, I have to realize what it is, but it's supposed to be light and refreshing in a dry finish. Right. Yeah. So do you think we'll ever know if they intended it for it to be sour or if it was just if, if, they're, if they're lining the barrels, then they probably intended for it not to be sour. That's the assumption. But, but we're giving them a whole lot of credit that we're lining barrels with tar. And, well, and, and also, you know, <laughs> were, were there breweries who just didn't have the money and time to do that? I may, I may not be a, a brewer anymore, but tar? Pitch. Oh, well, pitch. I don't know. I think, I think it's an awful lot of credit to give that it wouldn't be widely that it's tart or, or even, and I would go back to historically, I would liken it to Stockhill. What do we have to say about Stockhill? Well, Similar? It, it depends. I mean, Earl's made a Stockhill. That's their second beer that they made, and that wasn't tart either. How do you know? I've got the recipes. Did you try it? <laughs> Did you try it? <laughs> so, so We're giving them a lot of credit. Let me say this. That the first time that I became aware of pitch using used to line a wooden container was going to Pilsner Urquell Brewery in 
in Czechoslovakia. And so they obviously, that, that was a Pilsner. That was not intended to, you know, to when, happen. When were you there? What year was that? 1987. I wonder when, what was, what's different from 1987 <laughs> to 1919? Uh, no, I mean, the reason why you put the pitch in was just bad. It's right. Pitch. It's, it's a neutral, it's a neutral, it's like a wax like neutral. Yeah, I, I get it. I don't know. Maybe a bit more credit than I would give them. I don't well, sorry, or not. <laughs> I expected more arguments somehow. <laughs> you guys are all pretty uh, relaxed about this. There's a. I know. Well, there's a. You know, it's funny. There's a. Uh, there's a. There's a guy that wrote a, a book that I always like to call the Bible. Um, Conrad Sully, who's full of information, and uh, they were going to invite him tonight, but being craft beer week, this would have gone the whole week. Um, because he didn't stop talking. He's got some amazing information. But uh, yeah, in his book, he talks about Common and the, how they made it. There were breweries in town, like like Leah said, that, that only made Common. They were just common breweries everywhere. That's what everybody was drinking. And I think it's interesting, the, the, like a, a brewery on every corner. Um, my neighbor, uh, who died a couple of years ago, literally used to take 50 cents his dad would give him money and he'd take a bucket and he'd walk down to the local brewery. So how many people did that? He and walked down with a bucket. Yes. And we assumed that they had good sanitation practice. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's called rushing the growler. That's, yeah, my, my dad did that too. Yeah, he it's it's amazing to think that there was a, there were breweries on every corner and that happens just, yeah, You take a quarter or 50 cents and go and get your bucket filled up and you carry it home. And yeah, and it, yeah it's such your kids to do it. They walk into the tavern and it's crazy. So anyway, about prohibition. Oh yeah, prohibition. Yeah. So uh, there were only a couple of breweries out of several hundred that survived prohibition in town. Yes. Right. Um, uh, and you know, I think it's interesting the way some of those breweries survived. You guys got any thoughts about that, or? Well, and we, you know, we talked about we've talked about uh, fairs. You know, that made ice it became like an ice company, and Fall City uh, was making soft drinks and. Um, I, I read actually a, in the book that I wrote uh, that Ferris took over the Phoenix Brewing Company lottery tunnels and, and had started a mushroom farm to help make money. So it was uh, there was a lot of near beer, a lot of a lot of orange soda, uh, you know, selling ice and thing. And, and Leah, you probably have more to add to this. No, not really. I mean, it's exactly what you said. It's how Erdl stayed alive. Yeah. I mean, they were making the cereal, the soft drinks. Um, near, near whatever they could a, do to stay alive. Yeah, and, and of course, then there was you know brewing going on behind the scenes that didn't involve the the breweries. But uh, one of the things that I found fascinating is that uh, when prohibition hit, uh, John Erdl uh, sold or went bankrupt. He went bankrupt, and then he bought his brewery back in bankruptcy for like oh for like sixty thousand dollars. <laughs> I mean, you can you can buy a car who, for that, right? Who, right. Who who buys? A brewery on the cusp of prohibition that he had this vision where he would make soft drinks and near beer and come back stone. He ended up dying in like 1929. He never saw another beer made, but his son took over and it lasted into the 60s. You know, so it was, what an incredible vision. You know, so these these guys were these were not dumb people. These were business people. You know. I always wondered uh, about some of the malt beverages they sold, how many left there and with instructions on how to add yeast, you know? 
<laughs> yeah, but it could be like modern kombucha that doesn't have alcohol. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's funny. I, I think that there are there are some points to prohibition that you may or may not know, and it's worth thinking about. There's a really great book called uh, I looked it up because I don't remember the exact name. It's called The War on Alcohol: Prohibition and the Rise of the American State. Uh, the woman's name is Lisa McGurr, M-C-G-I-R-R. -R. It's a brilliant little book, not, not a tremendously long thing, but she makes the point that uh, the techniques that the government learned in trying to enforce prohibition in the 20s were kind of later either perfected or not, depending on your point of view, for the war on drugs later on. That much of the rise of the modern American uh, state comes from prohibition, not Roosevelt's New Deal afterwards. It's, it's worth looking into. It's a very good book if you're interested in that sort of thing. And, it, and Prohibition was also an extremely unsavory exercise in the sense that it was, uh, yeah, it was the revenge of the, <laughs> of the old guard against all the immigrants. It was very much an anti-immigration measure. Uh, and it was um, enforced very unequally. The um, African-American population, the immigrant population, suffered the brunt of the enforcement. And if you were white, and you could uh, you could pay off the man, then usually you didn't get in trouble. And that's the truth of the matter. So it's worth looking up if you have any interest in that. Wow, that's interesting. The uh, yeah, it's amazing that prohibition even happened to me. But uh, after prohibition, crazy. It's crazy. crazy that it happened. It really is. Uh, it's, it just blows me away. But uh, um, so one of the things I think is interesting after prohibition, um, you know. The, the big three, Bud Miller Coors, obviously took over a whole lot of things, but uh, and distribution was huge. Um, I kind of thought about like Kentucky's influence with the rest of the country. You know, um, how far did the beer go? Uh, I actually found uh, references to uh, fairs being sold in San Francisco and you know in the early part of the the this the the century, and then uh, in uh, with Arizona, but I wonder, do you, do you guys know if beer was sold, like from? Well, it may not be Kentucky Common because everything switched over to the to, to the loggers. The loggers, yeah. yeah I, from what I read, because I had to bone up on the book again, uh, seven states. Seven states. They were in seven states. Yeah, I think 176,000 barrels was there at their height. But they were in, in Erdl's in Fall City. Do you have any idea about? I think Erdl's in Illinois, Virginia. Uh, then there's pretty seven or eight states. So kind of around the south. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. Mostly southeast, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Thanks to Sergio, we got beer in Antarctica. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, I've seen your beer in Kansas, and I've seen it all over the place. It's really good. Cool. It We've hit every state, I think. And then every Japan, oh yeah, and uh, every other, every continent, really. I mean, even even Africa, we have it over there. So that's amazing. Yeah, you must have good sanitation. They don't. Yeah, <laughs> we do. Maybe integrity. That's great. Well, uh, one of the one of the great. I think it's the sour about, version. <laughs> one of the great things about breweries, you know, in the eighteen hundreds, it was neighborhood breweries because you just you shipped it three blocks away. You ship it to your neighborhood taverns. You know, and what I love is that craft beer is sort of slowly going back to that. You've got places like, uh, like you know, the, the public house. You've got places like Apocalypse. You've got places like Pints and Union that are serving 
serving neighborhoods more so than distributing, you know, and, and to me, those are the, if you will, the cockroaches of brewing because the, they will survive. <laughs> they will survive because I know I'm going to walk to Apocalypse at least once or twice a week to get a couple beers, you know, and that's just, that's just part of my lifestyle for better or worse. But, you know, what I'm saying is, you know, but I do, I do think the evolution of, of beer distributing as it, Kentucky certainly, but the evolution of beer, it will reduce the, the footprint that you have. I, I can say that we have, because of market pressure and because of, of the, the landscape that we're in now, we've adjusted our distribution to where we've cut out like 25 states. So we've, we've actually dialed it back, and I look to even dial it back even more. Uh, and it, it just makes a lot of sense because you want to get the freshest beer into the, the closest hands. Well, if, if somebody in, you know, Roanoke, Virginia has a brewery in their neighborhood. What good am I? You know, it, 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 that sucks for us, sort of. But what it says to me is the culture is growing, and we've seen it here. Even our culture has grown dramatically. So it's actually like a beautiful thing to, be able to come back home. And I think Adam told me I think three years ago that you guys were planning to do that. And I was like, man, what a great idea! Because the more you own Louisville and Kentucky. You know, and you, you quite obviously you're good partners with all the other breweries. You know, that's, I've never heard anything bad about you guys. You know, you, so it's like serve your community, serve your city, man. I mean, that's you know that's what you guys are doing. It's, I, I love that. Yeah, yeah. right, exactly. Yep. You know, thinking about the the beer distribution and things like that, it seems like there was a lot of uh, really cool advertising in the you know '40s and '50s and '60s. Um, the, the can man from Fall City, and then you know fairs had this. It's always fair weather. Yeah, the yeah, they, well you know it's, yeah they always said that kind of stuff, and the, the big creepy bear that fairs used to have. I don't know if you guys had any thoughts about any of that kind of stuff. I mean, I think it's it's interesting. I guess uh, I almost feel like some beer advertising gets uh, it. It kind of has gone away in in some like sports. It's huge, but I feel like. Uh, years ago, I mean, the fair's bear, that wasn't for adults. I mean, I've got a fair bear in my kitchen that whenever I wash dishes, it looks at me. But no, I, I love that stuff. It's so kishy in 50s. I, I love it. And it's so different now because, you know, you, you, you don't see many beer commercials anymore. But when, when you do see them, it's, you know, it's Bud Light, it's Miller Light. Back then, these, these breweries were, were marketing themselves in such interesting, strange ways. It's so much fun. The Can Man, the Dancing Can Man. You can find this on YouTube. But look up Fall City Can Man, and he's like got his top hat and he's dancing on the stage. It's really cool, cool stuff. I think. Uh, I mean, that's all great. I'd be honest with you. I, those are inspiring things. We're. This is the world that I work in, mostly the advertising, marketing. So, I'm often inspired by those things. But we speak to a different like, culture now, so things are going to be a little bit different. But I would like to kind of reference, Roger, what you guys did with New Albanian in the beginning, with the characters and the edgy art and the names. Those things really inspired my brand. Like, that's, that's kind of how I was like, oh, okay, that's how we would communicate who we are. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I think those things are really cool. So nowadays, though, that's, I mean, that's kind of where we are, is we, you know, we, we have to speak to who's listening, you know? It's not... It, it can't be like it used to be, although I love those throwback ads. In the 50s, that's who was listening. They were doing exactly what you're doing now. You know, it's a whole different market, and they were they were finding that market through that cheesy, 
post World War Two, you know, audience. I mean, it's 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 just fun to, to look back on what it was. You know? That that's what I'm what I'm excited for is the post COVID like audience. I want to see who that is. We don't know just yet, but it's it's definitely changed the way we're messaging now. So I'm kind of excited for what what's to come with that. <laughs> I'm just, yeah, I'm interested to see too, just because you you just have to be so careful yeah. with like who you're marketing to and the way you market to them, and you know, there's there's just there's there's a lot you're treading on a lot of eggshells out there right now because there's a lot of people that are, are that are claiming their their heritage and claiming their their stuff, and which is great, but it's. It's it's a balancing act, and I think that's going to be a learning curve for a lot of people, especially in advertising. And there, there's a lot more off limits now, isn't there? I mean, it's yeah, yeah. There's no. This isn't Archie Bunker's world, and then and that's even recent. You know, I mean, you can't say anything anymore without really kind of going back through it and paying attention to okay, who is my audience, and and who is going to be absorbing this, and who who am I going to potentially offend, and I don't want to offend anybody. Have you seen Sam's cans? Yeah, I, I, think, I, I get a little. I, I don't. I don't think about it that way. I don't think about who. Will, I don't want to offend anyone ever. But you can't. I mean, you can't. Not everybody. You're, you know, it's it's foolish to try to please everyone. You got to find find your people. But at the same time, um, I think that sensitivity is important. And I'm glad. You know, it, it, it's time. It's time to be. You know more aware of whose feelings you might hurt but instead of thinking about it that way I look at it as an opportunity to who who can we speak to like how can we get get out of the the box that we were in and go a little bit further yeah. so the whole culture of beer is uh, kind of a evolving I guess you know it says here Kevin maybe Oh, yeah, right. I figured you might have something okay. to say. I feel strongly that beer is a culture, especially local beer. And I'm talking about walking to your local brewery, your local taproom, pub, you know, and experiencing your neighborhood, experiencing locally made goods. But that's not just beer. That's a lot of things now, you know. But it, it is part of what a lot of us are now and i like to live in my neighborhood i like to drive my car as little as possible you know and i think a lot of people are going in that direction maybe i'm wrong maybe i'm just maybe i just don't like to spend money on gas but <laughs> i walked here I'm, I'm i walked here too I, yeah, yeah yeah you live close to me and in the brewery and i'm right. the end of the street i mean i'll probably walk past your house going home so yeah <laughs> unless i get a ride I got bourbon in my house. <laughs> you know, I wonder if that's a little flashback to some history there. You know, just get back to your neighborhood and, you know, just the same thing. So just let me say that, that you know, when there comes a time in your life, and I've lived in New Albany or in Floyd County, Indiana my entire life, and when you look up someday and there's six breweries operating in, in your town, and you can remember back when it didn't it seems like sort of yesterday but it would have been maybe 35 years ago when it was difficult finding anything that you, that you wanted to drink and now there's six breweries in a city the size 37,000 people this might this might have been really common in Germany it might have been common other places in Europe or in, in even America out west or, or somewhere on the east where the where the you know,
microbrewing, as we used to call it, first um, first took place. But you know, the culture has changed. If there can be six breweries in New Albany, Indiana, then the culture has changed. There's a completely different world out there. It's totally altered, and for better or for worse, mostly for better, I think. Um, occasionally not. Occasionally somebody screws up a batch, whatever. You know, yeah. <laughs> but you know, not to my taste that often. Not that often. <laughs> <laughs> this expertise is much better than it used to be because. Because actually, you know, brewers now have some training. I think that's better. So echoing what Roger says, the the culture has changed. I mean, when I got started in this, I to see a room this diverse, believe it or not, I mean, I it, it doesn't seem like it is, but there are women in the room. That was not a common thing 15, 20 years ago. There were much more men. Dean, I mean, how many women in brewing then? It just Remember when we started? It's, it's still really <laughs> I mean, I mean, okay, so I judge at the Great American Beer Festival, okay, and the last time we had all the judges together, which was two years ago before COVID, 300 judges and only 20% of them are women. And, and that's throughout, and it's not just brewers, it's beer industry people. And that's, it's growing, but it's still very small. It's, it's just wonderful to see that change, though. And then I got to tell you, man, like you, you don't pat yourself on the back sometimes enough. We have smoked beer. We have there is smoked beer in this city. Now I'm sure probably ninety percent of you are like, "Fuck smoked beer, it's gross." <laughs> but listen, but, but listen, you can't go to other cities and get it the way we get it here. And there's one reason why. This guy. We, I mean, had I not fallen in love with it over at Richo's, we probably, and Jerry's the same, we probably wouldn't make it, but we do it regularly because of that. So that, and that culture is here now. Like it's, it's just incredible what we have come to be. And I see so much more. It's, there's a lot more room for what we've got going. Yeah, so Roger, Roger is a big part of the uh, whole revival of, of brewing in this, in this state or in this area, right? I mean, you were one of the first, right? Uh, Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, I, I'll take just a moment and answer, or, you know, uh, expand upon that. So you know, I am maybe a little bit older than some of the people on the panel. So the first, the first job I had in the beer industry was uh, working at a package store in New Albany in 1982. So next year will be the 40th anniversary of that. And that was when we only had imports. There was nothing else. It's a long, complicated story. I won't bore you with it, but. I was able to, I got interested in it, and I was like 22 years old, 23 years old, and so we started selling some imported beers there, and that's all you could get then. There wasn't, there wasn't anything local, there wasn't things coming from other parts of this country, and then that kind of eventually led to, you know, the business at New Albanian Brewing Company and the public house and everything like that. So, yeah, you know, I've been doing it for a long time. I'm not sure what that means. It's like when, you know, someone, some baseball player gets elected to the Hall of Fame, it's always like... Is it just cumulative career statistics because you stuck around for so long and <laughs> didn't know when to quit? You know, is it bad or come on, man? Were you really influential? <laughs> We're still getting kick-ass beers because of you. Well, come on, man. You know, I, I feel good about it. I just, I just think that you know, it was really, it's gratifying to me to look around and see. Yeah, I would echo what Sam said. You know, it's gratifying to me to see that there's so many people who now get it. And those early, you know, for so long, those early years, it was like, you know, whenever, I, I just made a joke about this in my column uh, today in Food and Dining and said that, 
you know, if if some bar someplace 50 miles away from here tapped a keg of Pete's Wicked Ale in 1992, we were like, man, we need to go do that because <laughs> no one around here had that. And you know, you and this, I'm making all this up, obviously, but you'd get there and find out where they sent it back because it was a mistake. Because who the hell would drink a dark beer anyway? Uh, you know, it was it was insane to imagine someone would do that. And that's kind of you know where we were even 30 years ago. So it's just, it's really great. It's, um, it's just really great. That's all I can say about it. And this is the history that I am, that I know a little bit about, and it is, the modern history in brewing here has been fucking fantastic. Yeah. It had, we've had our ups and downs, but it's been so much fun. Well, this guy taught me about beer. And I, I started going to Richo's, and, and Roger would sit down with me and say, here, try this, here, try this. And I started learning about you know, amber ales, and I started learning more about stouts, and you know, he really helped me so much, which brought me to, to being here now, you know, so, and, and we're not here to, to just, you know, do that, but yeah, we are. I'm, I'm just echoing what Sam said, he, he influenced you, he influenced me in different ways, and you know, so. He had, we don't even talk about the European beer trips that Roger used to put on, and I got to go to Dadal and meet the brewer. I got to go to all these crazy Belgian breweries that he knew the brewers, and I had the hangover to prove it. <laughs> but I mean, a beer trip that he would organize, and when we had 17 people on that last trip, and this is a really long time ago. Oh my God. Oh. Oh yeah, oh my God, I, I think I still have a hangover, just a little bit. Uh, but it, it was amazing, he knew all the brewers, all the contacts, and you woke up in the morning and you had that little bit of you know cheese and, and um, meat to try to like, and then you drank beer on the bus on the way to the first brewery, and then you went to La Chouf, and then you kept getting the taste, and then they were like, oh we love Roger, here, here's your taste. I'm like, I, I'm gonna die. <laughs> it was awesome. But what, let me let me just what that was about though. It wasn't some sort of genius. It was. I mean, we're not talking about American craft at this point. We're talking about you know those old European breweries. And, and I was at the Delirium Tremens Brewery once, about 20 years ago, and took a tour of it. And and at the end of it, we all got really hammered. <laughs> there was like five of us and. We had them bicycling and everything. We weren't on that day. We took the train because we knew it was going to be it was going to be tough. And the owner of the brewery then proposed this toast to us, by extension to America, and said that, and this is true, that that if if America hadn't caught on to what the Belgian brewers were doing, then quite a lot of them would be out of business. This is 20 years ago. Right now, I mean, there's there's Belgian brewers right now who still are exporting probably 65 or 70 or more percent of the beers they do. So we really did, I mean, and, and I didn't do that alone. No one did that alone. It was in America that we figured out that, that the, you know, the Belgians were doing great things. And, and I'm here to tell you, they're grateful. And so, you know, for them to buy you a few beers, when you go visit them, at least in those days, I haven't been for a few years, but, you know, it, it makes perfect sense. I mean, it was a very reciprocal relationship with them. We, we supported each other, really. Just have to think about it. I think we're still, I think that's going on. I mean, on the other side, having been, uh, I'm late, late to that game. I am younger, if you couldn't tell. <laughs> um, went, I've been to Europe several times also on this, and it's really, like I said, he, 
Roger, you have brought to us, you opened a lot of our eyes and we were able to grow and proliferate. And now, I mean, yeah, you say, is it years of cumulative? Yeah, but look what we have. It's beautiful, you know? So, and then on the, on the flip side though, you, yeah, absolutely. Uh, it gives us, you know, American brewers and enthusiasts and, and pub owners and all of that, it's actually given us uh, an opportunity to show the other side, this is how you can do it. And, and to see them emulate American brewers, it's, that's what happens now. Uh, we, we finally are getting to that place. Now Louisville has a long way to go. You know, we can't give up, but it really is wonderful to see where we're at. That's great. You guys have any questions for these guys? I think if if you were to track my business's behavior, <laughs> yes, <laughs> I do. I think, like I said, we you know we've recoiled. We've done, we cut out twenty some odd states of distribution. The intent is to cut out another ten and narrow it down just to a regional distribution footprint, and then be able to go to places that we enjoy. You know, it's fun to have beer there, but there's no use in sending an IPA a thousand miles away and the, the journey beats it up, you know? So let's let them make their good IPAs and then make our good ones and try to get more connected with our community. Uh, yeah, so I was wondering about Common. <clears throat> um, I don't know if you all have Heard anything about theories on porters lately? How they say maybe they blended old stock with fresh stock? That's, um, yeah, that's been out there in the history for a long time. Do you have any any theories about the common and, and maybe some breweries that did that? It doesn't sound like that big one that you were talking about, but it, in the research that I've that I've looked up and other people like like Conrad and then um, Dibs Harding, um, you know, we looked up a whole lot of stuff and it's it it was a fresh beer. You made it, and you it, 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 it's in the log, it's like, it showed you the brewing, how much they made, and then it says Fossen, which means two barrel, and then they showed you how many they put in bottles, and it was basically, the shortest they did was like nine days. I mean, they weren't blending, they were trying to make money, which that's what I'd be doing. You know, you want to make the beer, you want to get it out to the people, they want it fresh, they want to drink it, they're going to go to these beer gardens, they're going to be having a, you know, a, a great time with their kids, and, and lawn bowling, and... Um, sending it out. Um, and it was price point too, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, it was cheap. Oh my gosh, when you when you look at some of the prices, I mean, what was it? Like, not four dollars a barrel. Right. <laughs> I mean, they call it. They call that the word you always see. The word you see with that is present use, right? Mm -hmm. That was the word. Present use. That was. No, I mean we. They were just. They were just knocking it out. And um, and what was the story that Conrad always told about? That it was it was kind of like Cascale maybe in a way because it was finishing and then they had like the threaded one of my favorite stories the threaded taps because it was so the fermentation some or the, the yeah but it could get so it, the, the pressure would build up yeah if it, they didn't have it, it it would pop out the it would pop out the tap so they threaded taps so, so it might spontaneously ferment just saying. <laughs> Okay, uh, so we talked a little bit about how Louisville had so many breweries and now they don't as much anymore. Can anyone elaborate on why Louisville became a beer city to begin with? 
Rogers said gateway to south. Louisville was a gateway to south. Louisville was one of the largest cities in the southern United States. Ohio Rivers. Not that long ago. I mean, Limestone water. Well, hey. and, and the falls of the Ohio, yeah, the everybody port. had to make a stop yeah. because of the falls, and they had to portage around so they would come down the river, and then they get to the falls of the Ohio, and they're like, well, what are we going to do? It's like, because they didn't have the, the locks and the dams then, so they had to move all the stop around, and then that's why the city grew. And those transportation patterns, I mean, the, the Ohio River was the first interstate before there was an interstate. And then it was north-south traffic through here. And the, the bit about, the, the, the comment about the portage that the Ohio River, the entire distance from, what, Pittsburgh to the Mississippi, there's only one place where you have to portage, and that's here. And that's the, the point that I've made before is that if those falls were, were 90 miles downstream, we'd all be in Evansville right now. We would all be in Evansville, and that's the truth. You know, that's why we're here, because of those falls. You know, so that's that's a quick explanation toward why we became a, a beer city. Uh, I may have been out of the room, but when you all were talking about common, um, what significance did corn play in the old versions of common versus like, I know every common I've ever brewed has a significant amount of corn. Is that just a gimmick because of now? Because of It's because there was a lot of corn around. I mean, that's why, I mean, if you look at even cream ales, I mean, why a cream ale exists is because they were trying to emulate the European lagers with American ingredients, with an ale yeast. So we grew a lot of corn, and we grew, and then they had rice available. And so when they made, like, Little Kings or, or that type, that the regular common beer, they used common ingredients. And so corn was prevalent in this area, and it's, it's a fermentable. So it's, and it's a cheap fermentable. So we talked a little bit about the New Albanian, and um, you know we just celebrated against the grains' ten-year anniversary last week. Congrats, Sam! Um, yeah, you all opened in twenty eleven, no, twenty twelve. When did you open? Apocalypse. May ten years. May ten years. Okay. So what else was going on during that time? Who who was brewing? If anybody, what was going on? We talked about BBC a little bit, but. I think there are a couple other ones, right? When I first got here, the two the games in town were BBC and Cumberland. Those were the two breweries. Cumberland was the first craft beer I had here. So, that, I mean, that place is so important to me. That's why, you know, me and my partners, we were very adamant to grab a hold of it. And then then the new guy came to town, the, well, the new let's, Albanian. Let's, no, 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 let's go back. No, let's go, go back. back. Go back further. I, I, let's go back. Let's go back. Then, no, you start. Well, I was going. I was going to mention the Simon. I, I wasn't here for that. Yeah, Pipkin was before that. Right. But was wasn't BBC brewing Pipkin beers? There was Pipkin, BBC, and then Simon. But you know, the, the first, the first, I was fourteen, guys. <laughs> the first, the first batch of beer that got brewed legally in Louisville after Fall City. Fall City closed in seventy nine, I think. Seventy eight. Okay, seventy eight. When I graduated high school, so. So Fall City closed, and then the first batch of beer to be done legally with some federal official imprint was Dave Pierce at, no, Dave Pierce at Charlie's on Main Street. Yeah. Oh, that's right. There was uh, across from the Kentucky Center, right? So they, they got permission to do this and made like a batch or two of beer. It was a pale ale, and that was like 1990 maybe. 
and it, it didn't last, and it, it was, but it was, you know, the answer to the trivia question that you win the bar bet. <laughs> because then the next one was a silo in 92, and then bluegrass brewing in 93. And the common, and the common theme in all these three is David Pearson. He's not here, so I'm going to mention that. That I'm going to mention something else that, that marks me as a definite chauvinist on this, but David Pierce is from Indiana. I'm from Indiana. All the brewers, all the, I'm sorry, all the owners at BBC were from Indiana. Okay, so we, we played an outside. I'm from Indiana. I'm from Indiana too. I am not. I'm not. because they make it. Well, no, they don't, you know what I'm saying, though, but I'm saying a tribute, a tribute uh, to, to like, what you all first started, like your very first beer was we, kind of a tribute to that. Like Roger, especially, you know. Like, we're, I mean, in, in Cumberland beers because we bought the, yeah. I mean, we bought the brand, so we can do that. But as far as, it's kind of you know, ticky-tack. You can't really do that without asking. Um, I, I would, I, I've made, we made El Hector one time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We did what, what was Citra, Citra ass clown. Citra ass clown. Yeah. <laughs> Someone should do a match red. Should do a match red. Well, that that's on the list. Matt's red is, and then and the mead, and uh, they had a, I don't know what they called their porter, but we're gonna do that as well. We'll we'll take just a couple couple more questions. So Jeff had uh, brought up uh, about the prohibition statement. Uh, producing malt extracts and syrups, it might have had a little description on the side that said, pitch a little yeast, obviously. Uh, so I'm very intrigued about the history of how breweries survived during Prohibition, especially by producing malt syrups and extracts to be sold commercially to the consumer. And Anheuser-Busch did it, Paps did it. I'm very interested in knowing which breweries in Louisville did it. And then uh, to touch on that, uh, over the last year and a half, it hasn't necessarily been prohibition, but what do you think breweries are producing in order to kind of go into the future that they've had to deal with over the last year? Uh, and, you know, where do you see the future of that going? We made a seltzer. Yeah, I mean, I think. We all dance around with it. We've, we have made sake. Uh, we haven't really gone too public with that, but we do have a sake brand that we'll bring to market fairly soon. Um, you can buy it at the public house. Come try it and tell us what you think. All right. Um, and then I think in addition to that, you know, I, I, I get the beer business daily, which is if, you can, if you're working for a company that will pay for it, get it. But it's fucking astronomical what they ask for it. But that, I get that. So I read the trends and I know where we're going. And one of the things that I think we're looking at you know, is the ready-to-drink market and, and how we fit in that. You know, it's tricky when you have a brand that's built on beer and, and like 
being authentic craft beer, it's hard to, to pivot and get into that world and not kind of feel dirty. So, but we're trying. Well, I like to get dirty. So. <laughs> when I find when so when I go out to GAB, I find I end up judging with a lot of brewery owners and, and um, manufacturers and what I see in the market, and you'll, you've seen it too, diversification. Have you noticed, like everybody's making bourbon now, or they're making, they've got their own distillery. So they're diversifying their brewery brand and they're make, going into spirits or, or everything. And I think it's because there, there's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff out there and there's just about this much shelf space. There's almost 8,000 breweries in the country right now. And, and in to, to what Kevin and, and Roger were talking about, I mean, and, and Sam, it's, yeah, it's great to be in your neighborhood, but if you're a production brewery and you're, you're trying to be out there, it's, it's a challenge because there's only so much shelf space and there's a lot of competition. And then the big people, you know, they're building breweries across the country so they can have fresh product too in your neighborhood. So that's, that's been interesting to me. I, I do think it's important. I mean, she's right, diversifying is the thing we're doing. Um, but that's good business. I mean, good business is you adapt and evolve and, and become what the consumer wants. And that goes back to knowing who you're talking to and being able to communicate with them the right way. I, it makes sense to me. I, I feel a little bit dirty when I say, yeah, we'll do seltzer and RTD. But at the same time, I'm in business to make money and I have a lot of employees and they matter and I want their lives to be great and you know the brand matters I think and we're, we're committed to the community we have a lot of dollars going in there so why not you know it's it's the right thing to do but I think I mean in, in the seltzer category you make a better seltzer there's a lot out there but you can always make something that's more creative yeah. and a little better and put your own stamp on it. And, I, and that's why I don't have a problem with it. It's a fermented beverage. So if you can make a, a different fermented beverage that's a little bit different and it's probably to your liking and it's better, more power to you. Because you know what? You're, you're, trying, to, you're trying to keep your customers happy. Seltzer is great for the, for the gluten-free community. You know, that's the, the other reason. I mean, I make a gluten-free beer. I, I probably have the only one on tap that's always gluten-free, but I can make seltzer and I, make, I can make cider and gives them some more options. So they're not like stuck with, well, here's the gluten-free beer that I made and then you're gonna have to drink it for a couple of months because I don't get enough pull on it. So make the best you can make. So capitalism's killing the planet. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Is that right? Yes. All right, last question. <laughs> So uh, Roger touched on historically, uh, you know, prohibition, of course, tamped down the entire industry and then, you know, some segmentation of like who gets uh, the, the bad side of the stick, so to speak. But when we come out of prohibition, we talk historically about beer gardens and things like that. Do we think zoning, you know, those are things we don't see very often anymore. Does that play a part or do you guys have insight into that within our community as far as like, Beer gardens and zoning, I don't know. Preach! I, I don't know the exact answer to that. This, this is sort of a, a guesstimate of an answer, but I think I think that's right. You know, I, I know, I really only know what Indiana's laws are because I've dealt with them for so long, but 
You know, nothing after prohibition, nothing was made easy. So I mean, the, the, the fact that prohibition itself had gone away was substituted for by numerous restrictive zoning covenants um, and ridiculous laws, as we all know, which varied uh, across 50 states, so that every state had a ridiculous set of its own laws that didn't match the other one. And, and I think that, I think you're right, that zoning and things like that were certainly local, local initiatives were not, were not favorable for that for a very long time, which is what had to preface this entire revolution in, in this country was like starting with Jimmy Carter legalizing homebrewing at the federal level. That didn't, didn't legalize it at the, at the you know, local or the state level, but it certainly said the federal government would have no problem with it. So it cleared the way for most of those states pretty quickly to legalize something like homebrewing. And everybody who was involved with the brewing industry back 30 years ago or more, I mean, you had people who had to, to literally change state laws just to be able to open and then you had to change local laws to be able to do the same thing. And so it was this tremendous lobbying effort. I and mean, I, I, I suppose I could think of specific examples like John Hill in, in um, Indianapolis, Broad Ripple Brewing Company. I mean, there was no law in Indiana that, that you, you couldn't make beer at that level. You know, so he had to change that. He had to change Broad Ripple Village's zoning laws. He had to change all that in order to be able to, to run. So I think you're totally right about that. I don't have the exact, you know, Facts on it, but I think you're right. It, it, regulation is fucking terrible here. I mean, just to be to be quite honest, and Kentucky's kind of backwards. We still have dry counties. I mean, that's a thing here. So, echoing, yeah, the regulation and zoning falls in that realm is is an issue. In 2012, we had uh, the Kentucky Guild of Brewers had to make an effort in order to like they lobbied and, and got a law changed so that a brew pub could produce beer and sell it on premise instead of producing the beer, sell it to distribution and buy it back. Think about how crazy that was. That if, if the, 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 the like guild of distributors, whatever they're called, if they wanted to leverage that before that, they could have, but the industry just wasn't a, a, a drop in the bucket for them. So definitely those things are issues. I, I think, you know, not to make this a political thing, but vote for people who are doing things for you. And then this is in a state where, you know, our, 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 our sort of main product is bourbon. And the state, we're the only state that taxes bourbon that's sitting in rickhouses and barrels. And they were doing the same sort of stuff to breweries, and still are to a certain extent. It's taken so much work with the guild, and thank God the guild finally was formed and is doing work and lobbying. Um, because yeah, you, you could you couldn't sell your own beer, you know, and, and it's just, it's ridiculous. It's a, it's a huge hurdle, but slowly though, I think the walls are coming down. All right, thanks guys. Thank you three for making right. great beer, oh. and thanks Kevin for writing about it. And, uh, thanks for putting this together. Thanks for being here, guys. Uh, I think they're all out of beer, so we're going to call this uh, segment. And thank you, Jeff. So if you like the panel format, we're also going to be doing a Women in Beer panel uh, at Logan Street Market on Wednesday night, 7 p.m. It'll be really fun. Please come out. Thank you for coming out tonight. Thanks for coming, guys.